3: for just two dollars a month, that is an almost eighty percent discount. The clock is ticking on this; it disappears at the end of the month, and then we will not offer it. We need your support. We need to keep news coverage alive in Canada. Go right now to CanadaLand.com/join, and thank you. This episode is brought to you by the Centre for Addiction and Mental Health (CAMH).
2: Moira Whiten, erstwhile Edmontonian, current Vancouverite, alumna of the UBC, and health reporter for the TAI, Thanks for joining us.
1: Thanks for having me.
2: I'm Jonathan Goldsby, filling in for Jesse, who, like Green Day confronting the dawning of the rest of their lives, is on holiday. <sighs> Today on the show, uh, how many ways must healthcare break down before you can call it collapsed? And hateful people continue to be hateful towards journalists. Ah, uh, that's not fun. Welcome to Shortcuts, where we talk shit about the news.
1: Very excited to be here.
2: <laughs> this episode is brought to you by Jacob Nilsson, Danica Burns, Daniela Pagliero, Norman Van Eden Petersman, Dominic Cobal, Manuel Sorhe, Petro Petrak, great name, and Duncan.
3: Hey, this is Duncan. I'm a biomedical engineering technologist in New Brunswick, and I support Canada land because of the breadth of stories that it produces, from the fantastic reporting at Commons to the investigations done through white saviors in Thunder Bay. And frankly, having a lens shone on the media landscape around Canada is nice, even if it has to be done through a blunt instrument like Jesse Brown.
0: begin with the crisis in Ontario's hospitals. ICUs and emergency rooms are really closing.
2: I want to start off by talking about what is becoming a very serious national crisis, and that's the crisis in our healthcare system.
1: This is not uh, exactly a new crisis. Our emergency
0: rooms are in peril. And this should be at the top of everybody's news every single day. Healthcare workers across the country are warning that our system is past the verge of collapse. The unions warn if the government doesn't act now, Ontario's healthcare system could collapse.
2: Past the verge of collapse? Isn't that just collapse? <laughs> Since the end of January, Fallsview Casino, the Ontario government's flagship gaming establishment in Niagara Falls, has been open 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The emergency departments in Ontario's hospitals... Not so much. Across the country, healthcare systems are in a state of, well, you know, you heard the montage off the top. Uh, the front page of Wednesday's Toronto Star says the healthcare system is beyond broken, and but the accompanying article wasn't even mostly about hospitals, but rather the home care system, which affects hospitals, because it's all a web of interconnected systems failure with deep, deep roots. Nearly 20 years ago, there was a lighthearted French-Canadian film, La Grande Seduction, about a Quebec fishing village scheming to lure a doctor to move there. A decade later, it was remade in English with the setting shifted to Newfoundland. And as Kelly Nestruck pointed out in The Globe the other day, two theatrical adaptations of it just opened in Canada. One is a French-language play in saint Jerome, The other is a musical comedy now running in a thousand-seat theater in Charlottetown. to brag and flaunt, give the good doctor what he thinks he wants. There's only one way for us to do this, folks. We gotta
1: paint what's ugly, fix what's broke. Paint what's ugly, fix what's <laughs>
2: fact that the crisis in rural healthcare is a subject of musical theater hijinks in Canada, I feel like that's a pretty clear sign that something is wrong. But of course, so are headlines like Alberta man treats own dying father in hospital amid healthcare staffing shortages via Calgary City News, or, you know, woman says she blacked out from pain during 19-hour wait in Windsor ER before learning she has cancer via the CBC in Windsor. So Moira, is it as bad as it seems? And would panic be an appropriate response or perhaps a counterproductive one?
1: I think it's worse potentially than than what we're hearing even in the news. Oh. Because a lot of (laughs) people are not to be a Debbie Downer. You know? But it's hard to tell like the real stories and the healthcare system is so opaque and there's so many limits on how to talk to healthcare workers and what they can say that I think like the patient stories, you know, that we're hearing of Mm -hmm. people blacking out in the ERs, treating their family members that's probably the closest to what's actually happening that we're going to get. And I think there's many more stories that simply aren't told and or haven't been found yet that are like that. As for panic, I don't like to panic. It can be counterproductive, but you know, whatever is going to ratchet up the urgency in terms of responding to this crisis, I think is valid. So panic away if it's going to actually do something.
2: Yeah, I mean, it's a larger question for journalism generally, and certainly it's something with the covering a lot of systems and larger the issues, including the climate crisis. Like, how do you get people to care about failing systems before they reach the brink of collapse?
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I don't think journalism with the what's new piecemeal building on an issue, you know, every one month coming back to something and just providing an update. I don't know if that's always the best structure for kind of conveying the urgency or the magnitude that urgency increases over a long period of time. Like I think about the toxic drug crisis in BC, I've written a monthly update and other stories on that Mm -hmm. every month, basically for two and a half years. And at a certain point, I'm like, I don't know if this is helpful. I think it's important to document, but I don't know if journalism effectively conveys like the toll of the crisis and like the magnitudes by which it's gotten even worse Mm -hmm. than when we already declared it a crisis in 2016.
2: I mean, some of that playing with journalism's need to always talk about what's new or what's the latest gets us like directly contradictory headlines that are both in their own way, true. You know, just struck by the other day, hospitals are under unprecedented strain from staff shortages, says Ontario Health VP on you know, CBC headline. Versus the Canadian Press via Global, state of Ontario's healthcare system not unprecedented, Health Minister says. I mean, I'm glad the Canadian Press reports what the Health Ministers say, and it's you know a responsibly reported article. But the fact that you can just say something and it, that becomes the headline, and that's the story <laughs> if you search for healthcare crisis that day. <laughs> It does seem like we need some new systems or ways to go about considering these things.
1: Yeah, I don't even know if describing something as precedent helps people understand it, you know? Like, that doesn't negate the reality that people aren't getting the care they need. So what's the use in parroting that without challenge in the story? Not saying journalists did that, but... If that's the headline, like people can be really misinformed if they just read that.
2: Exactly, I like guess the headline and the lead, and you and I understand how the Canadian press works. Mm-hmm. This is the news update for the hour or for the day, and their stories typically you know are iterative and they have different versions. But I imagine, yeah, someone scrolling by and seeing that headline and that lead may not necessarily read down three or four paragraphs to find a contrary quote. Mm-hmm. One thing I'm because I'm fascinated by is that for a lot of people, I certainly say for myself. Healthcare system is something that I, I don't have nearly as much literacy about as I wish I did or as I do with many other civic and governmental systems. And I find it's it seems, at least anecdotally, that it's something that a lot of people don't spend a whole lot of time thinking about until or unless they or someone close to them really needs it, or especially if they really needs it and it's the care is not going great. How much did you find yourself thinking about healthcare before it became your beat?
1: Very similar to what you just described, not a lot. I covered it at the Edmonton Journal um as the mm-hmm. United you know, Conservative Party took power in 2019. Mm. So that was a time of like intense change, intense transition, and I would say transformation in the healthcare system and the direction they set it on in those first few months. It was just a slurry of Pointing towards privatization and changing up service contracts, like going to war with doctors basically in the first six months of the government. And so my coverage there really focused on, you know, stuff that wasn't covered, people that were not getting the help they need, especially disabled people whose. H payments were getting uh, de-indexed from inflation, so effectively reduced every year. Mm. I grew up in Alberta, and I'm very lucky to have had amazing healthcare in Edmonton where I grew up. But that was the first time I started realizing that you know the help that Canadians, I think, in in the collective imagination, like to believe is there when they'll need it, is not always there. And I mm-hmm. think that's become even more true in the last two and a half years, and, and now especially right now.
2: Yeah, I mean, you may also be the youngest Canadian reporter on The Beat full-time, and therefore the majority of your career in journalism, I guess generally, but I'm certainly on The Beat, has been during the pandemic, which has been one kind of crisis or another. What drew you to The Beat originally, and how does it feel to be someone who's only ever covered in a state of crisis, or would you have had to have been on The Beat for many decades forever, to have ever covered it when it's working well?
0: Mm,
1: that's such a good question. I think I always appreciated how health as a beat and as a subject area is, <laughs> this is cheesy, but like the cellular level of politics, like it's so mm. personal, you get to talk to people about things that are impacting them like at the, the very most basic level. But then you also get to learn about science, you get to learn about health policy, you get to learn about international like health regulation, all these things. And when I started covering that at the Edmonton Journal, it was really a niche I could carve for myself because the previous health reporter, Keith Dryan, who's now a columnist there, had kind of left it wide open. So it was a chance for me to carve a bit of a beat and a bit of a like, recognition for myself as a young journalist. And then when I got the opportunity to uh, apply for the Thais position funded by the local journalism initiative, specifically for Boy. the Health Beat, I thought, you know, this is kind of the only way that I can do journalism the way they used to do it, where you had a beat and you built contacts and you were kind of the person, the the guy, I should say, for um, for a certain subject area. You know, that was really exciting. And then a week after I started, lockdowns started. And, you know, I realized that this was kind of a, an opportunity to really do the most that I could possibly with, with the health beat and at a really critical time. And it, it was terrifying because I felt very intimidated by my earliness in my career. And then I realized that so many journalists also didn't know how to cover health. It was not prioritized in newsrooms before the pandemic as much as it should be. In fact, those were oftentimes the positions that were kind of let go in in many places. And once, you know, newsrooms hit those crunches. And so when I got to kind of ride this wave, it felt like I was riding it with all these other journalists, figuring out how to cover health. Mm -hmm. you know, really going more deeply, I would say. Like it's... Health is such a wide and expansive beat that I feel like the pandemic has made it more clear just how many areas of our life impact our health and vice versa. And I think that's ultimately going to do journalism in Canada a huge service that now we've had this crash course and you know, all of the terrible parts of our our health system.
2: One thing that I've been thinking about the past little while in a tweet from John Michael McGrath, who's with TVO, who, uh, in the context of discussing the various reasons why Canada as a whole fared better through COVID than the States did, just in terms of mm-hmm. keeping it relatively contained. You know, one reason, obviously, is single-payer healthcare. There are a number of reasons. One he pointed out was that political incentives matter, and Canada's premiers had very strong incentives to not see a collapse of the hospital system on their watch because they wear that. And so I was really interested in seeing how would the governments, how would they sort of respond to the current situation? And not surprisingly, they are basically denying that there's a problem at all. As, you <laughs> say, as we read earlier, there's denying it's unprecedented. The other day, there was a scrum of, with Ontario's new health minister, Sylvia Jones, basically rebuking City News reporter Cynthia Mulligan for referring to it as a crisis.
0: Our hospital's in crisis right now. We're seeing more ERs closing. Okay, let's be clear. There is not a crumbling system in the province of Ontario. To suggest that it is in crisis is completely inappropriate.
2: And I certainly tend to take the various expert opinions over the words of the government. And I just want to bring up one more thing, which I also thought was another really interesting contrast. Uh, Once again, this is specifically in the Ontario context, but I'm pretty sure it applies more broadly. Matt Gurney, who I actually used to co-write a municipal debate column with at the Post many years ago, um, he wrote a series for TVO about health care and crisis. In one of his more recent pieces for them, he summed up what he learned about the long road it's taken to get to this point and the long road it'll take to get things past this point. He said on August 4th, Most likely, some of us are going to die because of an inability to access care when we need it. This is going to keep happening for Years. Years. It is baked in. Even if we made every smart policy decision and threw every bucket this problem beginning today, it would take years to fix this. On the other hand, there's Brian Lilly in the Toronto Sun. He's their Queen's Park columnist and also the common law partner of Doug Ford's head of media relations. And he said on August 5th, after Labor Day, the summer vacation schedule will have run its course, life will return to normal for nurses, as it does for the rest of us, and the crunch will subside back to the usual pattern of an overworked and understaffed health system filled with problems that have been ignored for decades. So he does acknowledge there's a, quite a long-standing thing, but he also says, you know, kind of, eh, this will be done by Labor Day. So what do you make of those very different views of the timeline here?
1: <laughs> well, OK, this is strange. I somewhat agree with both of them. Yeah, this is not a simple fix. This is not a, you know, an overnight or a, or a one month or two month fix, quote unquote. But if anything, COVID-19 and like Canada's pandemic response has showed that when government wants to, government can move like heaven and earth and everything in between to do something. You know, we had CERB, we had lockdowns, we had all these things. Government can take very drastic action when there is the political will and and the pressure to do that so i do think that you know a lot of doctors in bc are even just calling for immediate overhead cost relief for primary care physicians to get people back into practice alleviate some of the pressures and allow them to see more patients like i think that would improve things even before labor day if it were administered like tomorrow but also like Maybe there is some seasonality to it, like the surgical timelines always slow down in the summer because, yes, people do take vacation. Healthcare workers deserve to take vacation and not feel guilty about being away from work and from their colleagues and their patients. But to suggest that it's all going to go back after Labor Day is really, I think, dangerous because this isn't just vacation understaffing or kind of a vacation quiet. The healthcare system is literally only working because healthcare workers are there working overtime and having their goodwill and compassion towards their patients essentially exploited. Like they are the reason this healthcare system is still running. And so to suggest that like, because they took their kids away for a couple of weeks before they go back to school is, you know, why we're having this collapse is just not true.
3: Help As the largest online therapy provider in the world, BetterHelp can provide access to mental health professionals with a wide variety of expertise in mental health. Because you listen to this podcast, you get 10% off of your first month at betterhelp.com CanadaLand. That's betterhelp.com slash CanadaLand. This episode is brought to you by the Center for Addiction and Mental Health, CAMH. Heroic work that they're doing every day. They treat everyone with dignity, and their research is seeking and finding real solutions for everyone around the world. Help change mental health care forever. Your support will help CAMH build a future where no one is left behind. Donate at camh.ca/Canadaland to help CAMH treat addiction and build hope.
2: Moira, as you know, on this show, we like to duly note things. I'll go first. I'd like to note duly that CBC News Network on Tuesday conducted a serious interview about Mar-a-Lago search warrants with a former U.S. federal prosecutor, all the while with his pet cockatiel, Dolly, dancing around on his shoulder. <laughs> but that's not nearly as funny just in audio. So instead, I'll duly note that last month, Halifax's Frank magazine, which you shouldn't confuse with thought Frank Magazine, it's a different thing. So Halifax's Frank Magazine got an amazing scoop regarding the perpetrator of the April 2020 mass killings in Nova Scotia. Per the lead of Paul Polango's story... A 30-second snippet of audio tape shows that Gabriel Wortman was considered to be a person of interest in the still-unsolved murder of a Dartmouth man in 2004, according to a longtime friend of the mass killers. At one point, during their estimated 35-40 to minute conversation with Wortman, the Mounties honed in on the big question all murder detectives ask. When did you last see the victim? It was at this point that Doucette, who was Frank's source, reached into his pocket and activated the mini tape recorder he always carried with him. And this was the, the clip they heard.
3: In second coming, he is the mouthpiece and messenger and clarion of God. He is also
0: dead. Oh yeah. You don't seem too surprised to hear that. Why is that? I had a vision
3: that it was so. Oh
0: really? Yeah? Okay. So when was the last time you
1: saw him? I mean, other than your dream.
0: Huh? Oh god.
2: So that was actually Lawrence Fishburne and Ally McBeal's Greg German in a 2009 episode of CSI called The Descent of Man. That's the clip Frank heard, which prompted one of the more remarkable editor's notes I've ever had the privilege of reading, which was, The audio clip that forms the basis of the story is a fraud. Purported by Rob Doucette to be a clip of police questioning his friend Gabriel Wortman in the murder of Kevin James Petrie, it was lifted from an old episode of CSI. Frank regrets the error. In a follow-up article, they explained they'd, well, listened to it carefully, and it seemed so real. They wrote that it was the kind of story you couldn't have just go out and have verified because the RCMP couldn't be trusted, and they figured no one would speak to them on the record. And that that much was probably true.
1: That's my worst nightmare, is doing something like that. Sorry, I'm just like... <laughs> so, yeah, that's brutal. I feel for them. But that's really, really rough. Sometimes it's too good to be true for a reason. (laughs) Duly noted. And
2: what would you like to note duly, Moira?
1: I would like to duly note a story by my colleague in Vancouver, Andrea Wu at The Globe and Mail. As some listeners might know, BC's application to decriminalize small amounts of some drugs has been approved by the feds and will take effect in January, 2023. Now this is big because it's all about reducing the harms of criminalization and arrest and helping connect people to housing and services by reducing the stigma around substance use and criminalized substance use specifically, but a lot of activists and experts and drug users themselves have said it's basically designed to fail. And now Ottawa is actually excluding BC researchers from the grant money that's available to evaluate the effectiveness of the pilot program that will run 2023 to right now, 2026. So it's concerning. Andrea did some great reporting, hunting down the conflict of interest policies, the kind of community connection that will also be excluded from funding eligibility. And I mean, I, th- I think it's just, it's scary that BC as a hub for drug policy, and substance use expertise in Canada, which, you know, by design, by federal and provincial funding design, not to mention the epicenter of the toxic drug crisis in in Canada, uh, is going to be excluded from evaluating quite a novel approach, if novel if imperfect approach, to alleviating and and stopping deaths.
2: Wow. Duly noted. Over the last decade, there's been a great deal more vitriol directed at journalists and at the media at large. There's been a variety of reasons for that, ranging from particular strategic choices by certain politicians to, well, the evolution or de-evolution of the internet, which is, of course, the most powerful tool the world has ever seen for both facilitating direct communication and also radicalization. But today, I want to zoom in on a very specific manifestation of this in Canada, one that we learned this week, or certainly I learned this week, is still ongoing. Uh, Last fall, there was a particular cluster of unusually vivid, hate-filled, and often threatening emails targeted at mostly younger, mostly female, and mostly racialized journalists. This started about a week after the federal election and a few days after Maxime Bernier encouraged his supporters to play dirty with members of the media, which surely resulted in a pretty big wave of hateful messages. But inside of that, there was what very much appeared to be a coordinated campaign by Maybe just one and probably no more than four individuals. These were especially graphic, vile messages that were alarming in part by how calculated they seemed and by how clearly they were written compared to a lot of this stuff. Journalists would tweet about getting them, often sharing screenshots, and then other journalists, to publicly express solidarity, would then receive their own. Thanks to Saba Adazaz, one of the journalists behind the Toronto Star's This Matters podcast, we now know that at least one of these people is still at it. Uh, Moira, did you happen to catch that this week? I did. It was really disturbing to see what Saba received. Uh, Yeah, Saba tweeted screenshots of an email she got last Thursday morning from one of the same senders as sort of those ones last fall. And the person, in terms that were vividly detailed and Dense with slurs, described having a wall with printed out photos of specific women in Canadian media, including Saba Etazaz, Global's Rachel Gilmore, and Erica Eiffel. Uh, Eiffel, by the way, is, is with the, the Hill Times and the, the Bad and Bitchy podcast, the latter of which later organized a Twitter space uh, conversation about how BIPOC slash marginalized journalists can best be protected against stuff like this. And so, in this email, just described the printed out photos of them on a the wall, the sender said that they and their friends were debating which of these women should be retired or silenced, as well as other more sexually explicit things. I mean, it's really remarkable to see how much harm and fear in a particular person or even a small group of people can cause. Did you happen to get any of these particular emails last fall, or what's your your experience with this?
1: I didn't get any emails in that coordinated campaign last fall that I saw, mm-hmm. but I have had two instances of of online hate. The first was last summer. I just tweeted about how I was not going to celebrate Canada Day, and you know because of the confirmation of mass graves at residential schools. Mm-hmm. And at the time, a candidate for the BC Liberal leadership, Aaron Gunn, kind of screenshotted and quote-tweeted that piece and kind of ignited a bit of a mob in my emails. Then on Twitter, just calling me like, I mean, it wasn't anything that I took personally at all, but it was still scary. A lot of folks like getting attention from people who weren't engaging in good faith and were quite uh, threatening in some instances. And then the second time was actually the worst time, a rather violent email I got last October from someone who appeared unwell, but it was very threatening and um, was included like sexist and body shaming slurs, and that one I ended up like taking the day off work because I I couldn't stay at my email afterwards.
2: Wow how was how was um how was your employer with that?
1: Um yeah, the ty has been really supportive, and myself and other um, colleagues have gotten even more like threatening. I, I should note most of them are women as well. More threatening correspondence. We started a newsroom discussion, and we have. Set up like an email filter system, so all like mm. we have a bunch of filters that cover our whole server. And if like a particular word is in that email, and we've got a bunch of them, like probably a hundred words, then one editor looks at it once a week and just goes through the inbox to make sure that they're not missing something that was falsely flagged or something that should be escalated. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I know that we can argue about whether or not you should report this stuff to law enforcement, but just so that the reporter can be aware if. An editor feels Mm -hmm. something should be escalated if it's a safety concern. And then also, yeah, when that issue happened, I called up our editor-in-chief at the time and she uh, walked me through it. And the TAI paid for counseling afterwards to help me process it. Yeah, one session. Oh, wow. That's great. It was really great, really proactive, and I think they've handled it quite well. But, you know, this is a labor issue. Like, it shouldn't just be one news organization. I'm, You know, I love my team at the TAI, but it shouldn't just be one news organization doing good things on this. Like, I think news organizations and newsrooms across the country need to be thinking about this as a labor issue because it's going to drive women, racialized journalists, young journalists— queer and trans journalists out of the industry. And this is about their working conditions. It can't just be considered like a hazard of the job.
2: Yeah, I mean, quite a lot has been written about this. There have been a few reports. I mean, I think it was prompted specifically by this particular cluster of emails. There was a sort of roundtable sessions and then a report uh, this past February, Poisoned Well, the Results of a Roundtable on Journalist Online Hate, funded by the Canadian Journalism Foundation and in conjunction with the Canadian Association of Journalists, the CAJ. And it came up with a bunch of calls to action, including making digital security part of the job by incorporating digital security training to every newsroom position. Organizations could help keep their staff safe by proactively protecting their personal information, proactively empower journalists to do trauma-informed peer support that does not further marginalize their colleagues. Employers need to support journalists if they go to the police with legal resources. Healthcare plans for journalists must include robust support for physical and psychological therapy. And it's really it's amazing that you know, after maybe a decade of this sort of ramping up, you know, there are finally these discussions of what this could look like in a newsroom the Shauna Star has a new public editor, a public editor. It's uh, sort of like a, a newspaper ombudsperson or ombudsman. They field reader complaints and concerns. They're kind of arm's length in the newsroom. And they sort of look into places where there may have been a breakdown in processes or just like a lapse in judgment that led to the paper publishing things that it maybe shouldn't have, or perhaps not publishing things that it should have. So anyway, Donovan Vincent just started as the Star's public editor. And in his initial column, I thought it was really interesting. In addition to you know talking about all that in trust in news, there was a paragraph where he wrote, "'Aside from my work ensuring the star's content meets ethical guidelines, I'll be keeping a watchful eye, along with others in the star newsroom, on the disturbing level of vitriol, nastiness, and ugly personal attacks against journalists. Part of my role will be helping to mitigate the harm directed at reporters, editors, photographers, and others by bad actors who do so for sport or to vent frustration and anger.'" I mean, the TAI sounds like they've done a wonderful job. How do you scale that up?
1: Yeah, I mean, this is a regular discussion, you know, we're all in various journalism group chats, especially the ones I'm in with women and queer colleagues. I think it's really affecting people. It certainly made me think about what I'm willing to tolerate as a journalist and very real mental health impacts of of our work and the way that, you know, this violence is kind of becoming like a more normal, I shouldn't say normal, but common part of, of our jobs. In terms of scaling it up, like, I think newsrooms just need to take it seriously. And, you know, we've seen the CBC, like, really go to town on its social media policy, especially on young racialized journalists. We've seen, like, other papers and outlets bring down the hammer when when they don't like something. So I don't see why they're unable to prioritize this. Because, you know, if they don't, it's a huge contributor to burnout and to people leaving the industry when actually we need you know, racialized women, young, queer journalists more than ever. And I don't think it's fair to expect them to stay in an industry that doesn't protect them.
2: One of the points from Poisoned Well, one of the calls to action that I want to come back to, is that employers need to support journalists with legal resources if they choose to go to the police. Now, not everyone will choose to go to the police. Not everyone might feel comfortable going to the police. And there's many very, very legitimate reasons why that might not be the path a person chooses to take. But for those who do and those who want to avail themselves of that, it can be a challenge. I mean, Rachel Gilmore from Global was one of the people named in this email. And she contacted the police in Ottawa, where she lives, to try to basically say that I've been threatened, this is <laughs> this is a threat. And she recorded her frustrating attempt to explain the situation. The
1: threatening emails have been sent to numerous journalists in what appears to be a coordinated pattern. Individuals are filing reports with other police services as well. So this is the only... Okay, ma'am, ma'am, can I, can I talk?
2: I mean, it's so frustrating and... But it's also weirdly really not surprising that police wouldn't like, – you would think the police would know what to do with a threat. But as soon as you start talking about trying to explain the context – I mean, one of the things she noted, what appears to be a coordinated pattern. And I mean, I've been trying to track it as best I can since last fall. At least the ones that have been shared with me are shared, mostly shared publicly. And just I think I counted like 29 then in either few recently but yeah there definitely do appear to be some patterns and i'm sure i'm not the only person with a spreadsheet going hoping to make sense of it all that is shortcuts for this week thank you so much for joining me Mora. thanks so much for having me we're on twitter at canadaland People can email me at CanadaLand.com. I read everything you sent. I try to respond when I can. Listeners can also find me co-hosting Wag the Dog, but not this month because we are off. Where can people find you, Moira?
1: Folks can find me on Twitter at Moira Whiten or at the T-Y-E
2: this episode is produced by Aviva Lasard with additional production by Tristan Capaccione. Our managing editor is Kieran Oudshorn. Theme music is by So Called. Syndication is by CFUV one hundred one point nine FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca. And if you like what we do and you'd like to receive ad-free versions of all of our podcasts, please support us by hitting the link in our show notes or go to Candleland.com/join.